the decrees of the Council of Trent have never been rescinded. The curses have never been reversed. The Catholic Church today reserves for itself the right to curse every person on earth who disagrees with them. Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Now, if you've been following along on this show for any length of time, you know that from the very beginning, we've been doing episodes on the topic of church history. Uh, The goal of that is to help you have a better understanding of how our faith in Jesus Christ has progressed and changed and and met opposition over time in the church age. And so it's been a lot of fun. It's been really encouraging. I'm sure a lot of people have learned many, many new things that they'd never heard before. Uh, If you've been with us just recently, though, we have been talking about the Reformation. The last few episodes have been addressing the topic of the church kind of rebelling against and revolting against the Catholic Church and the dogmas and the traditions and even the oppressive nature of the Catholic Church. And so we've been talking about people like John Huss and John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and the Anabaptists just recently. And we've been learning about how God's people have been learning God's word and it's been motivating them and and, and causing them to stand up for what's true versus what they've grown up with. And it's been a very powerful and interesting and rich series so far. Now, with all of that, we have to understand that with any revolution, we have to study and consider what was the response to that revolution. And so today we're going to be talking about the counter-reformation, the Catholic counter-reformation, where uh, we will see how the Catholics responded to what they were seeing in Protestantism and in the Reformation. And for that conversation, I've invited our dear friend, Greg Axe, professor and instructor of church history here at the Living Faith Bible Institute, Yes, author of Church History, the book. Okay. We, we want to thank you for being here. Well, it's always again. good to be here, and especially with this topic. It's near and dear to my heart. I love it dearly. Yeah. And uh, I didn't like it when I was in school, but once I got a Bible, I figured this out and yeah. became very passionate for, yeah. uh, for history and for just... Uh, sharing how those principles relate to our life today. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, the book. You know, for those that don't have the book, we've addressed this before. The b- book begins with principles for studying yes. history, and so there are very important biblical ideas necessary to establish a lens by which we see history and we we look at the past. Yeah. In fact, this is a really good topic to bring that out with, and it's something I wanted to start out with before we ever get into any names and dates and facts and figures and things like that, because that's what bothered me in history class. And I know it did most people that come through history. We we don't care about those kind of things until we get perspective. Mm -hmm. And the biggest perspective we get on history comes from the very beginning of the book when I lay out how the history is a chess match Mm -hmm. between God and Satan. And God moves, Satan counters, and God moves again. And with that, if you just back up and stop for a minute and say, this is the Mm -hmm. counter-reformation. Right. Well, who's moving if it's the Mm counter-reformation? Because when you set up a chessboard, white always begins, God always initiates, Satan always responds. Uh, God is on offense, Satan is on defense, we are the sports writers. That's history in Mm -hmm. a nutshell, right? Mm -hmm. And... When somebody is countering the Reformation, who is it that's countering? And 
the average historian will report on the Counter-Reformation, but he never sees it in that light because he doesn't look at it through the lens of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then you add this factor to it as well. Isn't Reformation, generally speaking, a good thing? I mean, if something is broken, don't you want it reformed? Mm-hmm. I mean, if your car breaks down and you were in the process of taking it to the shop to have it reformed or repaired, and somebody came in to counter that, why? Mm-hmm. Why would they? Why would you counter a reformation of something if something has been broken and something mm-hmm. has been is not being run right? And that's essentially what Protestantism was, is the uh, response to a thousand years of abuse and oppression by the Catholic Church where they said, this is the true church that Jesus founded. It's not, but that's what everybody understood for a thousand mm-hmm. years. But then they looked at the institution and went, wait a minute, but this, this, this can't be right because of what's going on here with the abuse and the perversion and the murders and the corruption and everything that was taking place. Yeah. We've got to clean this thing up. And so Martin Luther and John Calvin and guys like that set about to clean up and reform the institution of the church, and now somebody's going to counter that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that should be all you need to know as we explore right. Paul III and Loyola and the Armada and things like that. All of those details factor in, fit in behind the principle of God moves, Satan counters, and God moves again. And once you get that principle down of history, history just kind of unfolds and unlocks for you where you can see what's happening and you're not just bombarded by endless facts. Yeah, yeah. So let's set the stage for today's conversation by creating some context. So Martin Luther posted his 95 theses Mm -hmm. in 1520. We've covered that in a previous episode. Mm -hmm. Can you remind us of all the ways in which the Reformation was pushing back against the doctrines and the teaching of the Catholic Church and explain what the intense competition that was arising in Europe uh, as the the northern part of Europe became more Protestant and the southern part of of Europe became more entrenched in their Catholicism? What was going on? And, and, And explain that tension a little bit. The main issue that Martin Luther had with the church was the indulgences where they were passing out free sin to anybody that wanted to do it. We'll absolve all of your sin if you do this for the church. And it just it grew to a massive abusive uh, issue. It was, it was horrible during the Crusades, and it got even more out of hand after that. And that was his main issue with the 95 Thesis. Uh, he did not initially uh, break from the Catholic Church. He did not initially even deny that the Pope and the priest, he was one, had power to absolve sins. Obviously, they don't because only Christ, only mm-hmm. only God can forgive sins. We, we understand that. But this is what they understood at the time. But, but he saw the abuse of it. And that's what he was saying. We, we've got to clean this abuse up because this is wrong. This, this can't be done this way. And it just immediately lit the fire. And so, as you said, we have the area up in the north around Germany where Martin Luther's teaching these things. He's teaching the book of Romans. He had read Romans chapter 1, verse 17 that says, The just shall live by faith. And he had exercised his faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And now that's counter to uh, what the Catholic Church has been teaching mm-hmm, for all mm-hmm. these years. So that's that's where the, a lot of conflict is, and that ties up the two main groups because Catholic Church obviously is running the world, and Martin Luther becomes very famous and very public, and so those two groups are vying against each other, mm-hmm. and the argument embroils between them while 
Anabaptist, as we talked about last week, and other smaller groups are just running through, yeah. and now they're free to be able to do what they want to do in propagating mm-hmm. the gospel uh, because Calvin... Luther, Zwingli have tied up the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And that's the basic um, uh, worldview or world situation you have at that particular point in time. And as the Catholic Church saw it, there was an attack on their soteriology too. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest issues, and this is going to get addressed um, as we continue through this episode, is that that Luther and his boys um, were declaring that, that the grace of Jesus Christ was the only thing necessary for salvation, faith in the finished work of the cross, Mm -hmm. where the Catholic church was, was, and always had been suggesting and teaching that it required works as well, that, that it it required the, the work and the commitment of the believer. The grace was good, but we had to work in order to earn God's favor and to earn salvation. And so that was also in the middle of this, this opposition, this contention, Mm-hmm. was a face-off over the issue of soteriology. Right. And and people needing to remain allegiant to the institution of the Catholic Church rather than individual personal relationships with God. Yes. So in our in our last episode, mm-hmm. we had a discussion about the Anabaptists right. and about their influence and their teaching. And we, we discussed how their theology actually most closely resembles maybe our own, at least from this time frame, when we see them and we see them moving and shaking, uh, we, we recognize that our, a lot of our Baptist theology and our tradition looks a lot like some of the things that we see in the Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. But there, were all, there was also a more radical form of Anabaptists mm-hmm. that were rising up that actually didn't look anything like what we would say we hold to. And so uh, there's this moment in the midst of the Protestant and Catholic clash where the Anabaptists, these radical Anabaptists, rise up, right. and um, there's something called the Munster Rebellion mm-hmm. that takes place in the 1530s. Right. Can you tell us about that and why that's kind of important uh, to history and why it's maybe even necessary f- for as a catalyst for the Counter-Reformation? Okay. Again, back to just a basic principle or a basic understanding of how things work. You've got the Catholic Church has locked down the world for a thousand years. You take a pot of water and put it on the stove and lock down the lid and turn on the heat, and eventually it's going to boil, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually it's gonna, the pressure is going to get to it. And that's, eventually, that's essentially what you have for a thousand years with the, with the, with the Dark Angels. The, the pot has been on the stove, the lid's been on it, and the pressure is building. And once that is released, Martin Luther tacks up his thesis, and John Calvin does his things, and Zwingli does his thing, and things are going to move rapidly in an opposite direction. It's mm-hmm. that pendulum yeah. uh, issue of life that we all have right. from the day we're born to the day we die. We, we, we adjust constantly. We're always doing that. And so what happens is you have a radical reaction to those kind of things, and sometimes that radical reaction goes way too far. Mm-hmm. Because when you take that lid off, whoosh, right? All right. And so there was a group of people and others around them that thought, well, okay, we're not just going to clean up what is here. We're going to, uh, we're going to slingshot to the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And so they had um, political and military revolt that. Uh, was built around this concept that Jesus is coming back and is going to establish his kingdom right here, right now, because you guys have messed this thing up. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it, it was a overreaction yeah. to, to the situation at the time. And it had to be put down. 
So mm-hmm. that that's what happened basically yeah. in a nutshell. And what's interesting is that Anabaptists had traditionally up to this point been pacifists. Yes. But but this group in Munster in Germany, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a kind of northwestern part of Germany, mm-hmm. had become radicalized to the point of militancy. Yes. And they were making socialist claims. They were they were saying that that the the wealthy should distribute their wealth and mm-hmm. And then uh, they're saying basically some very charismatic things that, that their leaders were saying that they had visions that Munster was going to be the new Jerusalem and right. that Christ was going to come back. And, yep. and some of their leaders were claiming, I'm the second Gideon, I'm the second David. And so they take over this city and the, uh, where really previously um, Lutherans and Catholics kind of dominated. And then there was a, re- a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. And there was a siege on the city and it was real, really bad. It was, yeah, it was ugly. And we see that kind of stuff even in our world today, mm-hmm. where um, those who claim Christianity are having radical reaction to the way things are going on in the world today, sometimes too, too extreme. Mm-hmm. How did the Munster Rebellion produce uh, a justification in the Catholic Church in order to characterize the Reformation as vile and wicked? Because I think I think this particular moment as was reported, became a, a platform for the Catholic Church mm-hmm. to say, see, this is this is what your Protestantism exactly. does. Exactly. The, you hit it right on the head. This, see, you don't need to be Protestant because you don't need to protest. Okay? This, is the, the, this is the one who true holy apostolic church. Why are you fighting against it? Because by you fighting against it, see, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, Bad illustration, but it's an illustration. You, you know, we had the Capitol riot in in Washington D.C. a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Overreaction to yeah. what was going on at that particular point in time, which is now being used as see, yeah, it's it's fodder for right entrenchment. Exactly. Yeah. To add to the the story and the narrative contextually, mm-hmm. um, maybe share with us a little bit about exploration in this time frame okay. because. We know in the early 1500s that that people are beginning to open up new trade routes. They're discovering new lands. People are headed west towards North America and 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 making discoveries all throughout that that area. And so that opens up and expands new opportunities, and it changes the way in which uh, Europe sees the world. How does that impact the the whole social dynamic during this time frame? Well, of course, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. This is a few years before Martin Luther in 1517 taxed his thesis on the, on the door. So 25 years ahead of time, and all these things are happening about the same time where the world is growing and the eyes of people they are seeing, oh, wait, this is not India. This is another continent. Uh, Columbus, his mission was to come to the new world and take the resources back to the Pope to fund more crusades to... Mm-hmm. Recapture the Holy Land and reignite the glory of the Catholic Church. Well, at the same time, God's moving on the other side to kick open the door with Luther and Calvin and the and the Reformation to Mm -hmm. to reform things. So it does expand a lot of territory. It does expand a lot of vision in people's lives and in the world, Uh, and 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 it continues that concept of Catholic domination of the world. They believe that they are 
bringing in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and that they have to dominate the entire world. The Pope to this day claims to have universal dominion over every human being on earth, whether they are Catholic or not, doesn't Mm -hmm. matter, Um, that he is God and king on earth preparing the world for for Christ, but of course he is. And Mm -hmm. that that type of uh, uh, mindset is now expanded when the world becomes expanded. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is even bigger that we... Yeah. that we have the opportunity to take over now. And of course, in these years, the Spanish are beginning to make their way to the lower parts of North America, right. beginning to take over by force, in most cases, um, areas and regions of Mexico and, yep. and putting down tribal people and forcing them to conform to, to the you know Catholic dogmas. And, right. and then there's the tension of, of, well, we'll just adopt some of these uh, ideas of Jesus. And, and so it was not genuine missions work, right? Right. Um, right. It was missions at the point of a sword. Right. You will become Catholic or else. Which, well, we, okay. which we know doesn't really work. Right. Right. So um, we'll, we're going to come back to a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but but for now, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that this, this fight between the Protestants and the Catholics, in the background of that, there are new opportunities for wealth and expansion. The Catholic Church sees that. Um, but then also in time, there'll be an open door for the Puritans to make their way to North America. Yes. So the expansion of the West also provides opportunity for those who've come through the Reformation. Right. So what you again, what you have is the Catholic Church has the lid, and they're expanding things. They're they're seeing, oh, this is a bigger world. Let's keep going. But then God comes in the back door, if you will, and starts pulling the rug out of that called the Reformation, now they have to counter and they have to respond mm-hmm. to that. So it's the chess match back and forth. And again, that chess match, we can we look at a typical chess match, we go, yeah, you can kind of see what's going on. This one is so involved right. and complex, right. requ- involving billions of people yeah. and the spirit world that you can never figure it out. But if you step back from it enough, you can see the basic hand of God moving and the basic hand of the enemy moving. Yeah, it's, and that's it's what five dimensional five dimensional chess. Five dimensional <laughs> chess, man. It just it'll drive you crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um so there are some other characters that are really important to this yes. counter reformation, one of which is Ignatius of Loyola, right. the founder of the Jesuits. Who is this guy and and what were the Jesuits and their influence over this time period in Catholicism? He actually studied at the University of Paris at the same time that John Calvin was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was injured in war, uh, 1530-ish or so, somewhere in there. It might have been in that one of, one of the Munster Re- Revolution type things. And while he was recovering from his injuries, he got into deep meditation. He was very devout Catholic uh, and began reading the works of Francis Assisi and especially of Dominic. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at these kind of things today and we go, oh, these Dominican monks and nuns out there, they're just doing these great humanitarian works and things like that. But that's the public face of the Dominicans. The When you roll it back into history, St. Dominic was the military leader of a brutal, vicious uh, campaign against the Albigensians in France that resulted in hundreds of thousands of murders mm-hmm. to keep a lid on heresy, if you want to call it that, uh, heresy meaning salvation by grace through faith, mm-hmm. all right, 
Um, <clears throat> this is the justification of the Catholic Church going out and murdering people in, in order to maintain the purity of their religion, which is like, wait a minute. I'm maintaining the purity of my religion by murdering people who disagree with me. Right. That concept is just weird. But <clears throat> he had read a lot of his works, was inspired by uh, St. Dominic from the 1200s to continue that type of um, work for the church. But he wanted to do it in the field of education um, primarily. So Loyola, as he recovered from all of his uh, injuries, uh, eventually uh, developed what, what what you would call, he called it spiritual exercises. It was like a discipleship ministry, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. but it was there were five levels of it, and it was intensive training of brainwashing and mind control, cultish to uh, the, 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 the Jesuits are the world's most elite cult. Mm -hmm. The teaching is designed around total obedience, complete chastity, complete poverty. Your mind, your will is completely subvert, uh, uh, subjected to the control of the Pope and the Catholic mm -hmm. uh, Church and the Jesuit society. Society of Jesus. Their mission is to infiltrate into the area specifically of education, but also media, politics, and any of the those main pillars of society in order to uh, keep a lid on things that way. Mm -hmm. If you can capture the mind, you have the individual. Right. Okay. And so the uh, the main issue of the uh, of that movement is is an education. That's why you see it today, Loyola University. Mm -hmm. That's why you see the Catholic high schools, Jesuit ed education. And on the surface, um, that's generally considered a very good thing, right? A, ca a Jesuit education is a is a good strong education. Mm -hmm. You're going to get um, you're going to get. A lot of good information with that, with the math and the science and all that kind right. of stuff. Right, it's going to be a tra traditional, tough, rigorous yes, education. Tough, rigorous, but that's the public face of mm -hmm. it. The private face of it is the infiltration in there to capture the mind to keep it Catholic. Mm -hmm. And that was his passion. That was his mission. And he and five or six other guys developed this, what they called the Society of Jesus, mm -hmm. which is known as the Jesuits today. And Pope Paul III initiate, uh, or he approved the organization. And then they set out to begin to train people to get into areas of higher education um, to to capture minds and keep those minds um, controlled by the Catholic thought. So people are becoming again more and more entrenched in what they believe. They're they're committed to the ideals of the Catholic Church. Uh, the papal order is seen through a lens of positivity. They're trying to pull back uh, from the kind of intense rhetoric and reapply a very spiritual, religious view of the Catholic Church. And, and you know, one of the claims that Loyola makes is that, that he and the Jesuits are committed to protecting the name of the Pope and to, to follow him wherever he goes and protect yeah. him on the field of battle. And, and so it's this kind of language that creates a lot of Catholic pride, mm -hmm. which allows them and bolsters them to, uh, and inspires them to, to have a council where they are going to look at Catholic doctrine and reaffirm those things. So enter 
Pope Paul III. Right. So tell us about Pope Paul III and how he worked to to kind of cultivate this this Council of Trent that we're going to talk about. Well, he's obviously he and Loyola are obviously contemporary with each other because mm-hmm. Loyola founds the organization. Pope Paul III approves the organization. Mm-hmm. So they are contemporary with each other. And like you said, it, the, the, the reaction that takes place with these kind of things, when um, you go up to try to take something from somebody that they want, they're going to clutch to it tighter, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. Hi, my name is John Scott. I go to Northside Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm an LFBI student. LFBI is spectacular. It's an institute that is taught by pastors as opposed to professors, people who are actually in the ministry with their feet on the ground, in the dirt, making disciples, evangelizing, and actually loving people. And it's the best resource out there for any sort of Bible teaching. In my life, I've used many of the classes. One in particular is the evangelism class. After going through the course, I was able to transform by God's grace the whole method and the and the whole process of the Bible study where it is more evangelistic and we're able to actually reach out to people and then actually study the Bible together. It's something so simple, but man, it's it's because of LFBI that that changed. Now, now we're able to plug that into an evangelistic ministry that we have out of our church. So I couldn't recommend LFBI more. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org slash support. The movement of God, the movement of the uh, of the Reformation is eroding a lot of Catholic thought and a lot of Catholic positions. And so a lot of people are going to grab it and clutch tighter to it. Versus compromising, which would be the other option, yeah. is to actually be allow some reformation to take place to compromise with the Protestants, right. which ended up not taking place. No. Those, those hopes were dashed. Exactly. Yeah. So we're not, no, there's no compromise mm-hmm. um, allowed with, with that with that system whatsoever. You will submit, you will obey. Uh, that's part of the Jesuit um, control also is that ultimately those who are completely steeped in, in the Jesuit theology and practice, especially under Loyola, have no will of their own. Mm-hmm. Their own will is completely taken away, and they are totally 100% subject to the will of the Pope. Mm-hmm. So this is what happens, and then people begin to clutch to it tighter. So when you, when, when Martin Luther comes in and says, salvation by grace through faith, the Catholic Church is going to respond to that by saying, oh, no, 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 and they're going to reaffirm those kind of things through a council back to our basic principles. Mm -hmm. The word counsel appears 24 times in the New Testament. One time it appears in Matthew is referring to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The other 23 times it's related to the Sanhedrin of the uh, the Jewish uh, elders. And every other time it appears, when a council shows up in the New Testament, somebody's going to lose their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is religious people conspiring together to murder Jesus or to murder his followers. Yeah. So whenever a council shows up in church history, just your antennas should go up and go, oh, wait a minute, something not something bad is going to happen here. Yeah. And so the Council of Trent is probably the second most important of all of history behind the Council of Nicaea. 
And this was the reaffirmation of Catholic dogma and doctrine that says the Pope is to be explicitly obeyed by every human being on earth without question because mm-hmm. he is God, uh, that salvation is through the church only, that salvation is by works um, yes, by faith, but then you have to work in order to add to that faith, uh, that the Catholic Bible is the only one that is true. And you can go on and on and on with hundreds of these kind of things. Yeah. And the list of the, the statements that are made in there always mm-hmm. end this way. If anyone does not believe that such and such, if anybody does not believe that the Catholic Church is it, if anybody does not obey the Pope, let him be anathema, right. which is the word curse. Right. There are over 100 curses given in the decrees of the Council of Trent, mm. where they're just cursing everybody that they can think of that whose mouth, Romans chapter 3 says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Mm. Uh, They're angry, vicious overreaction to um, their threat to their politics, the threat to their position, uh, the threat to their uh, religion. And as a result, they're going to curse everybody that does not agree with them. And ultimately, that kind of stuff throughout history is still going on today. And it obviously went on throughout the Dark Ages to massive degrees, results in that institution going out and murdering anybody that disagrees with them. Yeah. It, it, It inspires... Uh, a judicious response. So yes. we make these claims. Well, we got to enforce them, and and so we'll do that mm-hmm. by you know physical and military you know re- retribution. Yeah, and we give ourselves the right to do that. Mm-hmm. The Bible doesn't give us the right to do. It. God mm-hmm. doesn't give us the right to do that. Um, but we give ourselves the right to curse anybody that we disagree with, and therefore, if we curse them, that we can kill them. Right. So there are three convocations. So it took a long time for them actually to get the Council of Trent going. Yeah. There was some controversy about where the location would be and and what empirical authorities would be involved and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There's some nationalist issues going on. But eventually they settle on a place and they do three convocations with over with with 25 sessions. 25 sessions total, yes. And so I would like to break down some of the conclusions that these sessions draw right. and let you speak into those things. So if you're okay, sure. I'm just going to yeah. read through some of these sessions Got and it. then you can ad- address them one at a time. So okay. in, in session four, they decided at the Council of Trent that scripture and church tradition were equal sources of divine truth, mm-hmm. uh, which ended any hope of any Protestant collaboration, right? Because at one point there was some hope that, that the Lutherans would show up, they wanted to be invited, and they wanted, to, and they realized pretty quickly that there was no partnering that was going to take place, that, no. that Martin Luther's hope of of calling a council together to reform the doctrine of the Catholic Church wasn't really going to happen. No. But but they make this declaration that scripture and tr- church tradition are equally divine. Yes. Okay, Probably. now, first of all, scripture, meaning their scripture, mm-hmm. okay, True. which includes the Apocrypha, the Latin Vulgate. The, yeah, and in this and in this exact same session, yes. they, they declare that the Jerome's Vulgate was the authority. Yes, yeah. which is... Not even correct scripture for to start with, mm-hmm. plus our tradition, and that goes back to again one of our principles. Whenever you have dual authority, uh, somebody has to call the somebody has to make the call. When you have two groups that both claim authority, somebody has to step in and become the final authority and make the decision. Right, right. So there's no such thing as dual authority. And as a matter of fact, that is the uh, one of the that that's the first tactic of Satan. 
God said, don't eat of the fruit. Satan comes along and says, oh, really? Well, let me explain this to you, and mm -hmm. let me give you another authority yeah. here to draw from. Yeah. And now Eve is placed in a position of being able to choose from two different authorities. And she goes, oh, well, and being placed in a position of choosing between authorities makes you the authority. If I am the final authority, we are in a problem. Mm-hmm. And so in, in this case, what it does is it gives the Pope more license yes. to make declarations and to be the ultimate authority between church tradition and the scriptures. Yes. Well, so, someone gets to decide, and generally speaking, they decide in the most favorable way to themselves. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. So in session five, they reaffirm the doctrine that infant baptism actually removed all sin. So the Catholics redeclare. That, that the infant baptism, the, the work of infant baptism removes sin. Right. Show me in the Bible. Right. Show me a baby that gets baptized by it. Show me a time when Jesus said anything about infant baptism. Mm -hmm. It's not there. It's it, Again, it's all these things that are made up over time. And when you look at over time, this is middle 1500s. This is 15 centuries after Jesus. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of things that people are accepting this as, yeah, well, that's the way it's always been. But as it goes back, you can't find it anywhere. Well, mm -hmm. then here and here and here, and, they, and it evolves and morphs over time to get to where they were at that particular point, get to where we are even today with a lot of these kind of th uh, thoughts and doctrines that, that the church has. So it's not in the Bible anywhere. Um, yeah. You know, sin was introduced to the human race, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world. It was introduced. It existed before. When we walked in this door, we entered the door, and we existed on the other side of the door before we got in here. Right. right. Yeah. So sin existed before Adam, and it entered the human race when Satan tempted a, uh, our first parents in the, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. So the term original sin is not found in the Bible. Infant baptism is not found in the Bible. Uh, if you wanted to identify an original sin, it would be the rebellion of Satan, and then he introduced it to the human race through the temptation of Adam mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Right. So that sin was paid for by the uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And, uh, you know, taking an eight-day-old baby... And throwing water in his face doesn't do anything for no, that. No. And clearly, the, this reaffirmation is a response to the Anabaptists who, mm -hmm. this was their main you know, uh, cry, is right. that this is not soteri soteriologically sound. This right. infant baptism is not right. We baptize those who proclaimed or professed faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. And so there's a public cry, especially after the Munster Rebellion, there's mm -hmm. a public cry against the Anabaptists and so there's a, a clear justification on the Catholics' part, on, this, on the Council of Trent's part. Let's reaffirm this, and let's, again, let's take a firm stand. Let's go back to, to the, the first concepts of the Catholic Church and reaffirm those things right. time and time again. Right. In session six, there's a rejection of salvation by faith alone and that good works were necessary for salvation. So that, again, that's all part of basic Catholic theology that we have to earn our salvation. Mm -hmm. Session seven, all seven sacraments were declared to bestow grace. Okay, show me the word sacrament in the Bible. If you right. show me the word sacrament in the Bible one time, then I will grant you that there are sacraments. <laughs> okay? Yeah. It's just not in the Bible anywhere. No. And here's the, here's the 
the interesting thing about the sacraments. There are seven of them by the Catholic Church, baptism and uh, confession and uh, ordination and marriage, and there are seven total. Uh, because of the teaching of the Catholic Church of the celibacy of the priest, not one single Catholic on earth in human history has ever accessed all seven of their sacraments mm-hmm. because marriage is a sacrament and ordination is a sacrament mm-hmm. in their in their theology. Well, they are mutually exclusive. A married person cannot be ordained and an ordained, ordained person cannot be married. There have been 266 popes in the history of the Catholic Church according to their list, right. okay, which goes back to Peter who was not a pope. That's a side issue. Uh, but according to them, there have been 266 popes in the history of the Catholic Church and, and countless thousands upon millions of Catholic priests and bishops and archbishops and cardinals and uh, billions of people. Not one of them in history has ever accessed all seven of their sacraments. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, and to that, too, um, obviously, we believe in, in two ordinances, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the Protestants held the two ordinances. Right. And so this particular reaffirmation was in response to the declaration that the sacraments were wrong, that there are two ordinances, mm-hmm. but but there are not seven sacraments in Scripture, and that that's completely made up. That's a figment of, of someone's imagination. Exactly. Se- uh, session seven also strengthened the power of bishops within each diocese, okay. which was important long-term because it gave more autonomy... <laughs> to those who were overseeing regions. And this is important as Protestantism is, is creeping into these different regions throughout Europe, giving more autonomy to the bishops and to each diocese uh, allows them to kind of better protect the, the, the areas in which they oversaw, more, more lower management authority. Right. And, and we all have to also have to view the offices of the Catholic Church, especially at that time and especially under... Um, the the thousand years of the dark ages as political offices as much as religious offices. So not only were they in charge of maintaining spiritual control over their flock, which is a biblical concept anyway. I mean, not control, but protection of the flock. I mean, as a pastor, we're called by the the chief shepherd to be mm-hmm. the under shepherd to guard mm-hmm. the flock, right? Yeah. Okay, so it's important for us to to maintain that position. Well, there's added to it the political aspect as well, mm-hmm. where a bishop was not just a pastor; he was a pastor and a governor. Right. There is military might behind yes. the the uh, the office of and, a bishop, and there is the law of the land to be obeyed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, also, session thirteen defined transubstantiation as the real presence of Christ in the bread and wine. Remind us what, what that controversy is. Oh, boy. That, that is that when we uh, partake of communion, that the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ exists in the bread and in the wine, mm-hmm. and that the actual blood of Jesus is in that cup and the actual body of Jesus is being consumed with it's cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's forbidden by the law. There, there's no biblical basis for any of that. When Jesus said, "This is my body," um, um, you know, he he was not this given for your sins, and and he passed the cup. 
his body was still there. Nobody chewed on his arm. Nobody cut him right. open and drank his blood. Yeah. Uh, when he said in John chapter 6, the bread of life discord, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And he goes, he concludes that. This is the verse that they always miss. The words I speak unto you are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not talking about flesh. This is talking about the communion of being identified with Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins, the individual personal relationship we have through Calvary um, when he shed his blood and he gave his body to be uh, the sacrifice for our sins. Uh, Session 14, affirm the act of penance as administered by a priest. Yes. This is the uh, payment for sins. Uh, When you do something wrong, you have to go confess it to the priest, first of all. And the confession uh, of sin to the priest was the vehicle that many of them used for their own perversion. Um, Somebody would come in, a young lady would come in and confess that she was having impure thoughts or actions. And the priest would say, well, come on over to my house and we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, it was used as a vehicle uh, for the seduction of perversion. But then when somebody would, uh, would do that, then the priest would assign penance for them to do. And penance is what ultimately led to indulgences mm-hmm. uh, because penance began with public works of, of, uh, of restitution, right. uh, prayers, and then it turned into... Uh, well, you come in advance and we'll indulge these particular sins right. for you to be able to get, a, yeah. get away with. And it's just, again, it's a concept that is not found in the Word of God. Yeah. Uh, session 23 uh, said that priestly marriage would be forbidden. So they, they again, they reaffirm that. Because at the time, there were even Pope Paul III himself had many, many mistresses. Of course. And so... Uh, during this, they make this proclamation that that the priest is not to be married, and then they they support further support that by saying they can't have girlfriends, they can't have you know, they can't have a plan B on the side, you know, <laughs> they can, they can't have girls, you know, mistresses. So that that's one of the the, the declarations. But they continued anyway. Yeah, uh, you know, First uh, Timothy chapter four uh, for refusing meat and forbidding to be married is called a doctrine of the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, God made us. He designed us to be intimate. Yeah. Okay. And when you put a lid on that and suppress it, it's no no wonder what's going to happen. Yeah. So th- so those are the some of the big ones. Yes. Um, and all of these things in majority still stand in Catholic doctrine. Even absolutely, today. absolutely. The decrees of the Council of Trent have never been rescinded. The curses have never been reversed. Um, the Catholic Church to this day, and, and most Catholics are completely un- unaware of this, most Catholic priests are completely unaware of this, okay? that the Catholic Church today reserves for itself the right to curse every person on earth who disagrees with them through the Council of Trent. Uh, if a person is converted to Catholicism, just the regular old layman comes in, he wants to convert to Catholicism, he's taught uh, Catholic doctrine, then he has to swear in his conversion allegiance to the Council of Trent. In an ordination for a priest, they they swear allegiance to the Council, the Holy Council of Trent and the decrees that are therein, not really even understanding how much abuse and cursing is in that in in those decrees. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, in the years that follow uh, the Council of Trent, there kind of becomes a stalemate between Protestants and and Catholics 
as we get closer to the 1600s. Right. Explain to us the state of the church um, as, as we get to the end of this century, because there's a lot to say after this. So I just I want to kind of put a bow on this so that we see what the church looks like in Europe uh, during this this time frame, and maybe even without getting into all of you know the Church of England stuff, maybe give us a little bit about what was going on in England and how they kind of s- separated and created their own thing. When we come to the Counter Reformation, the best way to uh, to look at this and and to draw some real perspective on today is to understand that. Um, Here's the Reformation taking place all through Europe. There's an Italian Reformation. There's a Swiss Reformation. There's a German Reformation, French. Every country of Europe is trying some sort of cleanup process to this abusive uh, re- domination of the Catholic Church for the for the Dark Ages. And the Catholic Church re- reacts to that. They, they counter it. That's mm-hmm. what the Counter-Reformation mm-hmm. is. Uh, you have a war that breaks out in Germany uh, in the 1600s called the 30, 30 Years' War that completely decimates uh, Germany. And at the end of that war, there's an edict of restoration restoring 300 sites back to the Catholic Church that the Lutherans had been using for a thousand for 100 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, because after Martin Luther, it was about 100 years after Luther mm-hmm. that uh, this took place. And it brings Germany back under the fold of Catholicism. Spain comes back under the fold of Catholicism. Uh, the Italian Reformation whimpers out very quickly. Um, because that's Italy. That's the belly of the beast. Mm-hmm. The French Reformation with all the Huguenots and the Albigens and the yeah. they get tired of it and they just give up. Right. Okay. England, there's a body of water. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that body of water, 30 miles wide, called the English Channel, separates England from the rest of the continent. And that's uh, physically speaking, you look at it that way, but then spiritually speaking, there's just a separation of England from the rest of the continent of Europe. And the Catholic Church in their Counter-Reformation was successful enough in every other country in, in, in Europe to bring them back underneath at least, at least squelch mm-hmm. the ultimate Reformation. Yeah. They, were, they were not able to do that in England. And the ultimate reformation in England is going to lead us to um, Queen Elizabeth, to King James Bible, to explore it, to the uh, explosion of missionaries, uh, uh, missionary movement out of England mm-hmm. in the 15, 16, 17, 1800s um, as a result of what happened with the King James Bible and uh, and that publication at that time as well. But that 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 counter reformation is. Uh, it's it it was able to stop the process in the other countries except for in England, and that's that's where it, that's where it ultimately landed. And so we're going to get into all that stuff that you just hit yeah. on in coming episodes. But but Greg, thank you for helping us to get. Um, I mean, with all the, the most recent episodes, getting us mm-hmm. uh, an overview of the Reformation and and getting our head around that, it's been really helpful, and I think it'll set us up for a lot of really cool interviews and episodes in the future. Cool. Awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah. And we thank you for hanging out with us and listening into this episode on the Counter-Reformation. And as always, we want to remind you that you can learn all about these things, these moments in history from this book called Church History by Greg Axe. It's you know, aptly named book, Church History. But uh, this is available on Amazon. And so if you're interested in that, you're interested in church history, pick that up. But also, If you visit lfbi.org, 
we are often offering uh, church history from semester to semester as one of our courses. And, and of course, we would love for you to sign up for that class and learn more about church history with us. Uh, also, we offer many, many different classes in LFBI every semester. And so you can find on our course page uh, the courses that we're offering and that you can sign up for and enroll for. But we would love for you to check out the school, check out our statement of faith, our vision for our students. The hope is that the school would produce leaders and church planters and missionaries to go throughout the whole world and spread the message of the gospel and adherence to uh, God's word and discipleship. And so, and so that's what we believe in. If that interests you, please check us out. But we love you. We're grateful for any time that you spend with us. And we can't wait to see you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.